Do you feel as if reality has been altered? That something or someone has interfered with our collective present moment? Then this is the podcast for you. This is the sound of duality. This has the sound of a DMT molecule as it travels through your body, opening you to the knowledge that you seek. It's also the sound of sheep and bliss, wandering this universe and the concept of Sonder as you play a lead role created by these two states of being. Pull up a pew and take a seat. This is a podcast of all you touch and all you see. The guests are everything in between. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the duality of each state of being and the very thin line between each. All right, everybody, this is Drew. And this is the Pull Up A Pew podcast. Sorry it's been so long, but there's been quite a bit of uh, things going on uh, personally, obviously in the world uh, at the moment, with us dealing with the coronavirus and all of that which comes with this. Um, so it you know, makes it a little bit more difficult to get people together. Um, you know, to do anything uh, within a, you know, a space together where we have to do it separately, then you got to get everybody coordinated. Um, not to mention that Jessica was unable to continue. Uh, unfortunately, she had a major medical uh, emergency. And I, I don't want to really get into the personal issues of it, but it was uh, apparently very serious. Um, but I also just, you know, and again, it's probably just paranoia, but I find it very suspicious that this episode occurred while we were doing this podcast, uh, which is really about my own life, her life, other people that went through this hell on earth, as we literally call it, which is which is what it is. Okay. There's no other words to uh, really describe it. So I've been in contact with quite a few more people, um, you know, that have joined the Facebook page. So I'd invite everybody to please, you know, go to the pull up a pew podcast, Facebook page, uh, join up in there and we can discuss. I'm still looking for more people that we can interview. Um, because, you know, we're talking thousands upon thousands of people it's just unfortunate because a lot of them, as I've said before, are just just so mentally drained. Uh, they are psychologically destroyed that they can't even leave their own homes. Forget the virus. I'm talking about even before this, that they can't leave their homes. They're agoraphobic. They are completely and utterly depressed. A lot of them suicidal. I've mentioned that I lost a few friends the suicide not long after the raid had occurred and, and we were back home here in South Florida. And uh, so it took me a long time, as I mentioned uh, on the first podcast or maybe on the second one, but on being able to deal with these issues, I kind of just put them in the back of my mind, but it for sure 
had an effect on everything moving forward in my life, whether it was the last high school I had to go to um, before graduation, which was the fourth. Um, and obviously, you know, after escaping the Bethel boys home cult, there is no other word. Um, and in fact, if you do any research and that's what we're going to do today, I'm, I'm actually going to throw at you a massive amount of information and cited material so that, you know, the couple of naysayers here and there that I've already figured out are either friends with, you know, the fountains or are completely and still programmed, brainwashed, because they knew what they were doing. This this was not some podunk operation. But what I have figured out on my own, and I'm going to say, you know, allegedly, because I cannot prove this, but that the fountains were patsies in all of this. They, you know, from Herman's own admission of being, you know, a heroin addict picked up off the streets uh, by Lester Roloff and had his entire life turned around and, you know, brought to the Lord and, and the Lord spoke to him and, you know, brought him in the direction of creating these youth ministries. But none of that applies to him. It was all through Lester Roloff going all the way back into the 1940s. And then before that, we have another massively tragic incident here up in North Florida where the graves of hundreds of boys have been found from a uh, youth facility from around the turn of the century, then moving into the the teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, that were, you know, obviously physically abused or uh, tortured, killed. But a lot of you, uh, I just don't want to really get into that right now, but so you can look that up on your own. Um, There's plenty of uh, news articles concerning that. So anyways, Roloff had mingled with some of the people that had run that location. So he'd learned from from this place, obviously, the evil that he was going to spread throughout the, um, well, the United States and beyond, even to other countries, as I'm going to explain a little bit later on. But let me just give you a couple, just a little bit of a timeline here. In 1944, Roloff starts his radio ministry. Family Altar Program was the name of it. In 1946, he founded the Park Avenue Christian Day School. In 1954, he purchases KWBU radio station. In 56, the City of Refuge opens in Lexington. And as far as men and boys, in 1957, the Jubilee Home for Women opens in Texas. Um, And I'm sorry, I meant to say between 44 and 56, those were uh, a men's uh, institution that he had opened there in Lexington, the city of refuge. Okay. In 1958, the Lighthouse Ministry opens on the Gulf Coast Waterway. In 64, the city of refuge located near Rio Grande Valley. Set up in 66, the city of refuge grew. Older men moved to Culloden, Georgia. The younger boys remained in the Rio Grande Valley. In 1968, the one you guys have already heard about, the Rebecca Home for Girls in Corpus Christi, Texas, is open. 68, the Bethesda Home for Girls in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, is open. 
And if you notice that those two together are important from Texas to Mississippi, there's a reason for that. In 69, the People's Baptist Church was founded. All of the homes were moved to the 600 acres that Roloff purchased upon the erection of the new buildings. In 2011, the Roloff Ministries are still in operation. Okay, so I'm going to go through this. It's kind of haphazard, okay, and I apologize for that, but there's really no other way to explain this just because of the amount of information here is overwhelming. So let's just start here. In 1971, Roloff opposed the Texas Department of Public Welfare, which was the Texas Department of Human Services. Roloff would not comply with orders to have the Rebecca and Anchor Homes licensed and conforming to the department's secular regulations to avoid closure. Roloff and his associates opposed the order, considering it a breach of church and state separation. The controversy resulted in charges of neglect and brutality. So even going back then, but that's, of course, only what had been figured out as far as the government is concerned or, or anybody of any type of authority. You know, this abuse, brutality had been going on since the 40s, 50s, 60s. In 76, the Texas Child Care and Licensing Act became law, stating that children under 18 must be placed in child care facilities licensed by the DHS, Roloff and his supporters again refused to comply. And despite favorable reports on the facilities by Attorney General John Hill, I want you to keep remembering these names of people here, <clears throat> excuse me, within government that help Roloff along the way. And there's a huge reason for this. So the facilities, uh, and again, Attorney John Hill and state welfare inspectors, DHS served a restraining order in May of that year, even though it's in conflict. Wiley and Faye Cameron of the Roloff Homes New Beginnings, they started off in 1970. Wiley and Faye Cameron run the Rebecca Home for Lester Roloff. So they start running that, that home that we've spoken of before. In 1982, upon Roloff's death, which we're going to talk about, the Camerons take over completely. In 1985, the Camerons moved the Rebecca Home for Girls and Anchor Home for Boys to Missouri. In 1986, George Bush, governor of Texas, invited Wiley Cameron to Texas to meet with his faith-based committee. Bush introduced his faith-based initiative. Cameron joined the board of directors of TACCCA, which is the Texas Organization of Christian Child Care Agencies and Roloff schools became accredited. The Rebecca home was moved back from Missouri to Texas. Soon, Cameron schools were back in trouble for allegations of child abuse. So yeah, go figure, right? But that is key, okay? That George Bush allowed him to come back to Texas and operate without being regulated. You must make note of that because everything that I'm explaining to you now not only applies to today, but there's this massive web, everybody, okay, that, you know, even includes Epstein and, and Weinstein, what it's uh, occurred out in Hollywood with the children there, 
these schools that were operating for children and what were the facilities truly operating as. And I've always mentioned about the compartmentalization, about certain people within each group home only knowing what they need to know on a need-to-know basis. And then, of course, you'd have people up the top that were dealing directly with the politicians that were allowing them to operate without any licensing all the way to George Bush, who obviously became the president of the United States. Because there are an incredible amount of stories of men that when they were kids and had belonged to some of these groups, found themselves drugged and woken up on a plane flying to either different states' governor's mansions or to the White House. And this is fact. You can look this up. There were many, many, quote, parties thrown at the White House during different administrations that occurred boys under the age of 18. Now, they didn't explain why they would be there, uh, at least that I can remember. Maybe they had made up some type of uh, excuse that the boys were receiving some kind of award or I don't know. But look, they were brought there for a reason. And if any of you have been following along and understand what you're hearing and what you're listening to here, these parties were put on for congressmen and for different people. Um, and I'm you know, I'm forced to use the word allegedly sexually abused while at these parties. Uh, and at these locations, which went on and on and on with the Bethel Baptist Boys and Girls Home really becoming the culmination, the, the crown jewel within all of these different operations that got closed and then opened and then moved. But they moved, a lot of them, to Mississippi, like I told you before, because of the laws. Because in Mississippi and some of these different states, you could sign over your child and it literally was like an adoption, like it, it stood up in the same uh, legality of giving your child over to an organization or somebody else. As long as you signed uh, the, you know, the paperwork, you essentially were signing your child over, and it was the same as an adoption. So that organization had full control over everything and anything that occurred to you, and they were able to use quote corporal punishment against you. Now, I wish it was only corporal punishment. I mean, that's nothing. That That's, you know, child's play. Anyways, let's, let's move on here. So Cameron was jailed for refusing to turn over records to investigators. His wife, Faye, was barred for life from working with kids in Texas. Half the detained girls were sent home to their parents. The other half packed up and moved back to Missouri to the boarding and improvised dormitory on the property of an unaffiliated yet similar home for troubled boys while looking for a new permanent location to resume operations. I mean, just that paragraph alone is creepy. Um, In 2001, the Camerons purchased property in Pace, Florida, another state where they could operate without regulation or interference under the umbrella of the Florida Association of Christian child care agencies. So again, the connection between religion and these faith-based organizations, because then they would be able to fall under the guise, again, of being nonprofit. They're unregulated. Um, 
they could get away with so much. Uh, and again, take the boys, take the girls, and pretty much use them for anything that they want. And in today's day and age, you even have these operations working underneath what are called WASP programs, not just in the United States, which there are thousands of them, but outside of the United States. And I am getting ahead of myself, but I just wanted to mention that, that we will get to that. So these organizations are still operating. Now, they're not to the degree of Bethel with everything that had occurred there. Like I said, it culminated there as its crown jewel. These other organizations learned to use the healthcare system and, uh, you know, military type school uh, in, as far as organizations, the way that we, they would file. Uh, and again, using religion as a, uh, you know, facade. So then we have the Bob and Betty Willis Bethesda Home for Girls, which was established in 1967. It opened in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Again, Mississippi. Bert and Dorothy Barnwell operate it. In 1970, Bob and Betty Willis take over running the girls' home. In 1982, at the Bethesda Home for Girls, pregnant girls were beaten and ridiculed for having sex out of wedlock. You can look this up. It was on the New York Times article back from 1982, March 5th. Uh, homes for inmates tell of beatings. Uh, I'm sorry, if ex inmates tell of beatings. So this that has to do with the, uh, the girls there. That were being kept. In 1982, a lawsuit filed against Willis for beating pregnant girls, former residents of the, quote, Christian home for troubled girls, asserted in the lawsuit that they were beaten, denied adequate meals, and brainwashed, of course. I mean, that is the main thread going through everything here about becoming programmed, which was invented and used to great success by the three-letter agencies, okay? I, I don't even want to mention the names or I'm going to get flagged. So, But you can pretty much guess who I'm talking about when you talk about MK Ultra, which, of course, used to be a so-called conspiracy theory until it came out uh, under you know FOIA Act that it, it indeed occurred and was all real. So you all need to understand that um, these things occur, and a lot of people want to look the other way just because they're so horrific. Just like the things going on today between our government, the deep state, and a lot of what, again, is going on with the connections between Epstein, the you know horrific people out of Hollywood, the, the pedos out there, which Corey Feldman you know was brave enough to point out all of them. The man is not lying. His best friend, Corey Haim, great actor, another kid, again, committed suicide because of this. He just didn't do it because he felt like it. He did it because he was sexually abused to the point that, again, you know, he was heavily uh, using drugs. He just couldn't deal with it, just like anybody else that would be in that situation. And Feldman tried to put out a free movie. Uh, it was even streaming. This was recent. And they shut it down. Because he accused Charlie Sheen of being one of the people, and I have a feeling it was it was Sheen's group that uh, shut down the stream, so nobody could see the actual movie, which is a shame. So, but I'm sure they'll get it back up for people to watch. <clears throat> Excuse me. And again, you just gotta keep moving that same situation over into politics, and then over into the elites like the Epstein's and many people that you had would have no idea. Because you think 
that they are somebody that they are not. And that's because they are actors. They are acting. That is what they do for a living is to lie to you in essence when they are acting in a movie. So I hope you understand the direct correlation of what's going on. So anytime you hear them speaking during an interview, you have no idea if they are playing a role that they are making up, which usually half the time they are because a lot of them use method acting and it's very difficult to get out of method acting even to move into another role. It takes them a long period of time. And a lot of people that are Christian claim that this is them being uh, inundated with uh, spirits and and uh, demons, you know, to take over their body. I can't speak to that and don't know anything about that. But it's certainly, you know, look, I would say this. They certainly look that way. That's for sure. And if you've noticed, a lot of them aren't looking too good right now. They're looking a little bit sick. And I'm not even talking about coronavirus sick. There's something going on there. I think a lot of you should notice, make note of, and we might actually find out about some of that, you know, what's what's going on there. Anyways, let's get back to the, uh, the story and the timeline here. So in 1985, the Bethesda Home for Girls closes. In 85, Bob and Betty Willis overlooked another abusive boarding school called the Christian Life Boarding Academy. These things just sprout up like weeds. In 87, Christian Life Boarding Academy closed for abuse. What was it open for two years? <laughs> Bob and Betty Willis then have the Mountain Park Academy. In 87, Bob and Betty Willis opened that Mountain Park. Wayne County, Missouri is where it was. Willis opened the park sometime after he began buying the school's 164-acre tract in Wayne County in August of 87. Until that year, he had operated the Christian Life Boarding Academy south of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So there's a bunch of cited articles here that I'll put in the show notes for anybody to look up so that they understand that everything you're being told here is cited and true, uh, backed up by many people and have court cases cited, so on and so forth. So there's there's no more that anybody can say as far as this stuff not being true, the abuse, uh, both physically and sexually, uh, you know, being flown around, which I'm going to get to here in a moment. Um, and as far as what was going on with the compartmentalization within the different groups between the people that were there, that heads of different departments, you know, the left hand wouldn't know what the right hand was doing, that some of them were just really actually thought it was true that they were just kind of there for a, uh, you know, fire and brimstone type preaching, uh, home for wayward children, uh, that they would use corporal punishment, blah, blah, blah. And that's the role they filled, but they didn't understand what was going on behind their back where the younger children were being taken and flown to these different locations and used for, I'll let you use your own imagination, but you can find these uh, interviews all over the place. You can probably still find some on YouTube, but of course they've taken the, the majority, if not all of them down by now, you might still be able to find a few, but I'll leave that to you. Um, but please try. You should be able to find information online. And that's all you have to do is look up uh, boys and uh, young girls, um, 
speak of being brought to either governor's mansions or to the White House for specific parties where they were abused. Um, and you will find a lot more information than you probably want to find. So now we have the McNamara's, both former residents of the Roloff Homes for Adults, took over the Rebecca home after graduating the Roloff program. Yeah, graduating. I love that word. So, of course, now you have people that are already programmed and completely brainwashed taking over the schools, which makes sense because that's the best way to keep the lies moving forward and to, again, keep law enforcement, the Department of uh, Health uh, Services within all the different states not understanding what's going on or they might hear something going on at one school, they go there. And they've already been tipped off, believe me, because people in local government, and again, that were getting use of these facilities would know what's going on and they would tip them off. So they could pretty much do whatever they wanted on the property by making changes, let's just say, there or moving certain articles or property or people So, in 2001, the legislation allowing private faith-based homes to operate without state regulation came up for renewal and was not renewed. Cameron closed the home rather than accept the state regulation oversight. And to avoid legal implications in association with the old Rebecca home, the McNamara's and Cameron's assumed independence from the People's Baptist Church, renaming the home New Beginnings Girls Academy, just another one and another name. Wiley Cameron remained president, but had little to do with daily operations of the renamed home. McNamara and his wife remained as non-site directors. Eventually, Wiley Cameron resigned his position, giving the McNamara's full control. In 2007, abuse allegations began to surface at New Beginnings, prompting investigations. The home was moved from Pace, Florida to La Russelle, uh, Missouri, to evade state interference. And I apologize if I completely messed up the La Russelle. I think it's La Russell. Anyways, either way. Um, Missouri to evade state interference and expand their enterprise. Shortly after moving, they also began admitting teenage boys. This is in 2007, folks. So... Now let's move on to the Jack Patterson Reclamation Ranch. In 72, Patterson meets Roloff. In 72, again, Patterson becomes employed by Roloff at the Lighthouse Academy in Corpus Christi, Texas. He stays there for three years. In 75, after he's been programmed, Patterson opens up the Reclamation Ranch, Empire, Alabama. He also opens the Rachel Academy in a nearby county. In 2011, Jack Patterson is still in operation at his new location. Why do you think these places are still operating? They could only be operating if they have specific political figures throughout time. And again, most of your congressmen, women, state senators have been in their positions of power for many decades because we are complete and utter morons for continuing to elect the same people over and over and over again. You don't even think about it. You just walk into the stall like the sheep that we are and just click on the same person. I mean, and that's how they get away with this. And that's why they have 
tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in their bank accounts. Just look it up, folks. They walk in there with, you know, $15,000 in their bank account. And then within a few years, they literally have tens of millions of dollars. That happens by being paid off by organizations like this or political action committees called PACs. Well, I'm sure most of you have probably heard of those, but that's what they are. They're political action committees that work on behalf of different interest groups like, the, let's say, the Oil and Gas uh, Institute or the uh, uh, religious um, institutions like this, so your, your 501c3s. And again, it just goes on and on. But they get paid, okay? They just slip that in their pocket. And then we reelect them like the fools that we are. And this just keeps on going. So there's nobody really to blame but us, our generation. I'm from Generation X. I don't have kids, but, you know, got plenty of friends that do that are within that age range. They're maybe having trouble with them. They're sending them off to these facilities. 95% of them are parts of these WASP groups and are still organizing around this type of punishment. And again, it's not quite to that degree, but it's still completely horrific as far as the physical abuse, uh, mental and psychological sexual abuse going on. In 2010, a fire guts the three-story dormitory on the property formerly named Bethesda Home, which is originally of the Roloff Enterprises, before remodeling was completed and the facility renamed Reclamation Ranch. In 2011, Evidence points to Dr. Patterson moving to Michigan and reopening Reclamation Ranch. These, these people just move around like cockroaches, ser seriously. Now we've got Mac Ford, the new Bethany home for boys and girls. In 72, Mac Ford meets Lester Roloff. Isn't it funny? All these people keep meeting Lester Roloff. Who do you really think Lester Roloff is? Who do you think he works for? Why do all these people just have these chance encounters? There's always happens to be this one particular person. In fact, there's a great documentary. I can't remember the name of it. That was on Netflix not too long ago. And I can't remember the guy's name, but he runs the, the Christian-based part of the government where they have the national prayer breakfast every year. And the guy had been doing it for you know decades upon decades upon decades, and his name is brought up all the time. But again, blurring that line of church and state, that that money keeps rolling in from these televangelists and all of these organizations that go directly into these politicians' pockets. So again, they can do whatever they want. And the politicians allegedly, can do whatever they want with these boys and with these girls. And I have to let you use your own imagination. I, I unfortunately can't describe any of it. But again, you can go and look up the different people that have made the claims and hear them yourself, word for word. These people are not lying. They are not making up these stories. This all occurred as spoken today by me and as retold in the stories from these kids that you can go and what well, these kids actually these adults now so in 72 after being ordained into the ministry by roloff ford opens the new bethany home for wayward girls in arcadia louisiana in 1978 mac ford opens a new bethany home for boys in longstreet louisiana in 2011 olin king is still operating the second chance ranch all these places are still operating, folks. 
In 79, Ford is unable to avoid clashes with the Bainville Parish Sheriff's Office. Legal documents regarding appeals, charges, etc. are filed, some federally, going back as far as 79, perhaps earlier. In 81, Larry Rapier is arrested at the New Bethany Boys' Home in Longstreet, Louisiana, an extension of the girls' home in Arcadia, for cruelty to children, then released on a $15,000 bond. In 82, the Longstreet home is closed down and the boys' records destroyed to keep Child Protective Services from finding and interviewing them. The New Bethany Boys' Home is thereafter moved to property purchased by Mac Ford in Waterboro, South Carolina, the appointed director being Olin King, another Ford and Roloff associate. 82, Mac Ford opens another boys' home in Waterboro, South Carolina, operated by Olin King. In 84, the New Bethany Boys' Home is raided by the Colton County Sheriff's Office due to allegations of abuse. Olin King, said to be a former employee of, guess who, Lester Roloff, as well as a few of other of the male employees there say the same thing, were all arrested. Attorneys for the Kings took an hour and 45 minutes explaining the use of handcuffs, rope, and holding cells. Let that sink in. David Arbitel, former school principal of New Bethany Home for Girls, school principal, that's laughable, an associate pastor of New Bethany Baptist Church defended the school and said its sole purpose was rehabilitation. King later pleads no contest and was convicted of unlawful imprisonment, given a two-year suspended sentence and five years probation for unlawful imprisonment of children. Two-year suspended sentence and probation. Let that sink in, okay? Olin King, Second Chance Ranch. In 1988, he opens a Second Chance Ranch in Danbury, North Carolina, run by the King Family Ministries. In 2011, as I said earlier, it's still in operation. Public records show that Olin King's boys' home is still operating. Penny Ford, daughter of Mac and Thelma Ford, married Olin King's son and works at the Second Chance Ranch. Now we get to Herman Fountain and the Bethel Boys Academy. In 1977, Herman Fountain works for Roloff in the Rebecca Girls Home in Corpus Christi, Texas. As I explained to everybody earlier, Herman was picked up off the streets of New York as a teenager by Lester Roloff. Herman Fountain is incredibly, let's just say, of a very low IQ. But the man is also charismatic. When you look at the man, he scares the, the shit out of you. If you're if you're a kid, the way that he speaks, the way that his eyes are, again, it's just it's very difficult to explain what this guy is able to do to you psychologically. And I think a lot of it, especially if you've already started where you're hearing him when I was strapped to the bed for three days and had to listen to him 24 hours a day each day on a loop about him being a part of God's army with Armageddon was coming any day and we were going to be the army to rise up to battle during Armageddon. And that's what was being drilled into our heads as part of the programming uh, technique. And I believe to this day that I really do, I've changed my really, as far as being able to look into this and really drill down, Herman was a patsy. This guy really believed this stuff. Okay, and that's why they were able to keep this place open. Herman was making his money 
by putting the kids out on the, you know, the, and I don't want to use the word, but the, the N word crew. If you look up on uh, YouTube, you can look up a, a bunch of different things on Bethel Boys uh, and the raid that occurred in 1988 there. But you can hear what they call them, what you were told to do. You work from 6 a.m. until 8 p.m., either sitting on a little uh, rock and chipping bricks all day long, uh, you know, digging massive holes and filling them back up again, or working on the grounds of other people. And this is where you would make his money because we would be doing uh, construction work or whatever at a specific location. And then, of course, Herman would get paid on top of all the money that he was getting from the children's uh, families that they were targeting from these wealthy uh, areas that I had come from, Jessica had come from, and some of the others. There was at least six or seven of us there at one time that was from the area that I was from. And I don't really want to get into that uh, of about the wealth and all these different things. There's really no point. But just understand that that was the reason why, because it was very easy for them to use techniques of you know drilling into these parents because of tough love and how, oh God, how evil that organization is and the Hugs Not Drugs organization, which was literally run by drug addicts and by pedophiles. It, it, that's a whole other show, folks, okay? So we'll get into that at another time. In 1978, Herman Fountain opens the Bethel Boys Academy in Lucidale, Mississippi. In 2011, the fountains are still in operation under a different name and now are associated with the WASPs. Wanted to make sure that was clear. That's W-W-A-S-P-S. I'll explain what that stands for here in just a little bit. In 88, the director of a fundamentalist children's home and two assistants were indicted by a state grand jury today on charges of assaulting officers who raided the home June 13th, and took custody of children said to have been abused and neglected. Don't forget, folks, if you've listened to the series already, they were tipped off three days before this occurred by Congress. I had given testimony I was as a minor so that they would be able to put together a case. Not just me, there was some others as well, but because I had actually physically escaped with the one other boy and successfully had gotten away without getting caught, and brought back, I was able to speak to the Lucidale Police Department, who were actually very nice to us, showed us, showed us books after books of, of kids that had beaten so badly. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was just brought tears to my eyes, just looking at it and, and knowing what I had already just gone through, uh, which I'll get to. But, you know, when, when we escaped, I was just smarter than they were. And most of the kids there, you know, a lot of them hadn't even graduated high school or let alone even the ninth grade. A lot of them uh, had killed their their parents. There was one kid there for that. So you had kids from all different um, areas of life and, you know, with, with different uh, coping mechanisms and survival skills. And luckily, the year before that this occurred, I had done a course out of Alaska on how to survive in the wilderness. It was a six-week course. This was an accredited course. Once you were done, you were certified. You could actually um, teach people how to how to do this. So March 87 um, is when I had approximately ran away. 
I was the first in many, many years just due to making one decision, and that was to outsmart them by going where they least expect it, and that was the swamp. So I had also sneaked out some matches from the, uh, I think it was from the, uh, um, like the dining hall area. It was a couple of weeks before that because I knew that I wasn't going to run for the town if I was able to get out along with the other boys that I wanted to get out. I was going to go straight to the swamp and just use whatever I could, you know, learned and remember, which actually worked out very, very well. Um, but we had to stay out there for three weeks and I was only able to get one other out, unfortunately. So I had taken those matches knowing I'd have to be able to build a fire. I'm in a very wet environment. Um, I know how to start a fire without matches, but that's really would, would have been very tough to do. Uh, I, I wouldn't have been able to figure out how to do that under those conditions with everything being so moist. That time of year, we were also getting rain, which was a good thing because then we were able to collect some rainwater um, in order to drink. But, you know, again, it was very hard as far as starting fires. You know, as everybody sees on TV of twisting and turning like a screw, the two sticks with a twine, um, easier said than done, you know can do it, but it's it's not the preferred method. That's very difficult. You can use a shoelace uh, and wood, but there's quite a lot of other things that you need to do. So look, it, the point is I had matches again, but that was the only thing uh, that I had in order to help us. I had found a uh, trash can lid, a metal trash can lid, and when you turned it over, that's what we collected, rainwater, and then poured them. I would There was these large leaves that we picked off and then used um, like not twine, but I'm talking like uh, what do you call it? Vines, sorry, like vines to tie the bottom of them into cones and pour the water into them, and then we could just kind of set them up against um, the roots of kind of the mangrove areas and stuff, um, and the different trees, and just keep the water upright is what I'm trying to say, and then we'd be able to drink it, you know. After that, as far as food, I'll get to that, but there was a walnut tree not too far outside of the swamp, but we really didn't want to leave there. So we just did it at night a couple of times to get to those, uh, get to those walnuts. But what you're taught in these survival schools is you start with what are called twiggies and then you go up the twiglets, twigs, sticks, so on up all the way until you get logs. And those are just the tiny, tiny little things that you use to start a fire and that's the name they give to them, these cute little names. You know, the twiggies would be tiny, tiny little pieces of wood. And then you'd have some type of uh, very, very uh, volatile material beneath that, like uh, just shavings from from wood underneath there in order to start a fire. So anyways, um, the biggest fear really was water moccasins or snakes, you know, that were in the, the swamp. Because you, you got to understand, again, Lucidale... I don't even know what it's like today, but back then, this is the middle of nowhere, literally. And I don't even remember how many miles away the city was, but it was quite a quite a distance, but we weren't going to go there. Then you had to worry about the bacteria and the water uh, with all the stagnant pools. So we had to wait to get rain water that we did collect in that, that trash can lid uh, that was turned over. I'd rather put up with whatever... Um, you know, I'd wash that down the best I could, but there still would have been bacteria in it. But it was still better than drinking the, the swamp water. You, you wouldn't have wanted to do that. You would have gotten sick immediately. 
But what I did know is about duckweed, and it's a superfood. If you can find it, and you do find it in those areas, and we were able to find it, it's kind of like a grain algae-looking uh, stuff. It covers the water surface, uh, looks like a vivid green carpet of moss. Uh, you can scoop it up. You don't want to eat it raw, um, but it is very, very nutritious in that raw form, but you, you don't want to eat it that way because, of course, again, you, you've got tons of bacteria that can make you sick, give you diarrhea and dehydration. So how do you prepare it? Well, you just basically filter it. You kind of uh, filter it with some cloth we did with our shirts that worked as, as cloth over a pot. The pot was the trash can lid. So you gather that duckweed, um, hand place it over the shirt, uh, allowing the dirty water to seep through. And then you have a decent amount of duckweed ready for cooking. And then you basically just uh, uh, cook it basically in, in that uh, lid. And so you would kill all the bacteria. And again, it gave you all the nutrients that you really needed along with the walnuts. Um, I mean, we lost a lot of weight, trust me, in three weeks in only being able to do that. But look, I'm here. So that's all that's really important. Um, you know, really, when you're in a situation like that, you just got to be aware of what your weaknesses are and limitations. And hopefully, if you're with some other people, you delegate out to them what might be your weakness, and then you do and run what are your strengths, or you delegate authorities. That's what you do as a leader. You delegate authorities out to other people that you know that they have a strength in. Um, you know, if you're smart enough to do that to start with and running a little organization, if you're ever in a situation like that, um, um, you're lost in the woods or you're I don't know, just pick a situation, all right? But that's how you want to do things. It's very, very simple. You don't want to be a tyrant. You don't want to make all of the decisions, but you also don't want to immediately become, quote, a democracy and just vote on everything. It just doesn't work that way, okay? Because usually the majority of the group, they're not going to know what they're doing. They're not going to know how to vote. So you've got to use your skills if you know what you're doing and have ever been through any of these situations like this and delegate authority. But you also have to admit and know what your weaknesses are so you can find somebody that's able to take up, um, you know, the slack, so to speak. All right, so let's get back to the story here. So the children were removed from one of Herman Fountain's home. Mr. Fountain, who claimed to be a former heroin addict, as I told you, and practitioner of witchcraft, had said he had as many as 120 children living at his 28-acre compound outside Lucidale. He contends that his right to freedom of religion exempts him from any state oversight. Of course it does. But last June, a George County Youth Court judge looking at allegations of beatings and other abuse, which had come from the information that I provided along with uh, the other boy I escaped with, I have to assume. I never saw him after that. His parents came to pick him up there at the police station. And I'm looking for you, man. If you hear this, I can't remember your name. I am horrible with names. But if you hear this, please get with me. Um, but they ordered the State Department of Public Welfare to take custody of the Bethel residents. A lot of them weren't there, though, because that's, again, um, Herman told all of the kids to run. 
because he was given that three-day notice from somebody out of Congress. And why do you think it would have been from somebody out of Congress? I've already put all of the pieces together for you. All you have to do is put the puzzle together, people, okay? Because they were using these children, allegedly, during these parties and get-togethers for, again, use your imagination. That's why they were tipped off. What, what other reason would there be to do that? unless those stories were absolutely true and that's what was going on there and again that lead in fact i'm just going to bring it up i'm just going to say it i'm just going to get it out what had happened to me is i saw while we were sitting there chipping bricks one day a line of the very very young uh boys that seemed to me to be anywhere from maybe like seven to ten years old um a couple of them that i had seen up close a few times um had been beaten very very badly broken limbs None of them were ever taken to the hospital, but they were being marched out towards the back of the property and didn't see them after that. And they noticed that I saw that. So a couple of days later during the night, they ripped me out of my bed, took me out, put a gun up to the back of my head. But I have to say, allegedly, because I, I this was at night and I can't see what's at the back of my head, but I feel a metal thing at the back of my head that's obviously meant to be a gun because that's what they said they, they basically told me to dig my own grave that you know i had seen things that i wasn't supposed to see i just went out of body folks i'm just going to be honest with you i didn't i didn't know what else to do um i didn't cry but that wasn't just because i was some tough guy i just didn't know what to do i froze i just kept digging i just knew this was it. I was going to die and um, no one was going to ever know how because they were just going to say that I had ran away and they have no idea whatever happened to me. And so I just remember going out of body and just looking down at myself from above, digging the hole. And then, uh, you know, obviously I'm still here. So it was still part of the programming, but they did scare the shit out of me, but not enough for it to make a difference. I still knew this just gave me even more, more of a reason to hate them and know that I was going to get out of there. I was going to outsmart these people and try my best to get out others if I could because you were on watch there the entire time. You're not allowed to speak to anybody and you had somebody watching you. So I had to create hand signals that... Uh, a number of the boys learned after a certain period of time. They had no idea what I was doing, but then they did figure it out. I can't remember exactly. It wasn't the boy that I took with me. There was another one. Um, and again, I, I, I don't know his name because I couldn't talk to him, but he figured out what I was doing. And then he kind of explained to the other ones um, because some of they could talk at that point, but not really to each other, but they could still talk. So they could get away with you know, mentioning something. So they explained what I was doing and that I was going to get out of there and I was going to take them with me or really anybody that was able to understand what I was saying, I would try to get them out. It took me, uh, I was there about six months, a little bit longer. Um, thank God it wasn't any longer than that. But there towards the end, I just didn't have a chance because you're being watched the whole time. Um, You've got the, the fences all around. The people that say it wasn't fenced are lying to you. It was completely fenced all around. And to get up and over that, there was these uh, spines, not Constantino wire, but there was these big spines sticking up. They would fold them up. And so just getting over that, we got all ripped up. Anyways, I was only able to get out that one other guy. And unfortunately, 
but at least I was able to get one out. Um, and I helped them to help protect them, you know, the whole time we were out there in, in the swamp to show them what to do. And, uh, he wanted to go towards town and I explained to him the reason why not to, <laughs> because they would be able to pick us up immediately. As soon as they figured out that we had, uh, made it out, we probably got about a 15 or 20 minute head start. The guard had fallen asleep. And, um, so that's what gave me the first start of being able to get out of there one step at a time and to make it out over to the fences. So anyways, that was one of the big things I wanted to mention to you guys. You know, one is the being strapped down to the bed for three days and playing the music. And again, nobody believed me. Um, my, own, my own family didn't even bother to ask what was going on. And uh, I don't blame them. I mean, look, I have my brothers and sisters. The closest one is is 10 years to me. You know, they were in college or whatever they were doing. And, you know, it upsets me because none of them asked anything. But I've forgiven them and I, you know, I love them. They're, they're you know, it's my adoptive family too. I'm, I'm adopted. So talk about being abandoned. Uh, I obviously have issues with abandonment, um, just like many others do that went through this. But I was uh, adopted at 18 months of age. That's very unusual as well, because you've already bonded with your mother um, and your family at 18 months. And to be ripped out of that family and put into another one was horrific. Um, I, I won't get into the D. Again, that's, that's for another day. And it actually would make for another really, really good show and how I was able to find and locate them without any information and before the internet was uh, really a thing. Um, you couldn't use it really for doing any research. So there's another bunch of articles here that I'll put in the show notes as far as Fountain is concerned. But again, it was the culmination and we're going to have to do another episode only specifically focused on Fountain, the, uh, the compartmentalization that was going on there, Brother uh, Owens, who now has some type of uh, situation out in California. He's running some group out there. But he's the guy that, if you guys have been listening to the series, that when he left the police station, threw the garbage bag um, at me and whispered in his in my ear as he was leaving that they were going to find me and they were going to kill me. That was the thing that actually lasted with me for the longest period of time. It wasn't even the supposed gun put to my head uh, and even dig in my grave. As bad as that was, as horrific as that was, it was just his voice, the way he did it, that I had nightmares for many, many years after that. And it made me, you know, do and act and... A lot of different ways, uh, went through two different marriages. You know, it was very hard to keep relationships going. Um, it was very difficult to mature because I was forced to grow up very, very early, very early from even things that occurred before this cult experience. But in the ways that it made me grow up were not structured in a way that was positive, if that makes sense. So I was not able to keep and maintain adult type relationships. And I'm sure a lot of you can probably identify with that. So officials say 
when there are allegations of abuse, the state health department, DHS, the attorney general's office, and local law enforcement are required to work together. Sources say that 11 girls who ran away have gone back to their homes while the remaining residents wait at DHS offices to be picked up by their parents. But again, there wasn't very many of them because he told the kids, oh, I didn't mention this earlier, I apologize, guys, uh, to run away, that it was within their interest to run away from the home. These were young kids. He basically was kicking them out because what he was doing was he was creating a fiasco like this, this like herding cats because all the kids took off in all different directions. And he said, they're coming after you and they're going to put you in jail and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And of course, the kid, you're freaking out. You don't know what to do. So you run. So now they've got to find these kids. They've got to round them up plus do what they need to do there at the Bethel home. So you can imagine what that was like for law enforcement, not to mention that they were tipped off three days at a time. So, you know, they weren't able to find the disturbed areas of sand and dirt there on the property. You guys can let your minds wander there, but yeah. And that's part of what I had uh, had seen and kind of, uh, you know, came to a conclusion even even at that time um, that there was a kid tied to a tree. I think I mentioned that on one of the other episodes. If not, then, uh, yeah, just tied to his tree by his parents uh, who just abandoned him, didn't want him at all, just tied him there like he was an animal. Um, I actually got an animal from the... Uh, shelter once that was tied to a tree outside the shelter just like this little boy was and uh, I only saw him for about a week a week and a half and he was gone and I guarantee you he was sent uh, pretty quickly because of his age uh, to one of these locations that I'm asserting and uh, abuse um, and obviously the point where he may have passed away and uh, that's why he wasn't brought back there so we're going to come back to that. Um, there's, there's a lot more information um, concerning Fountain and, again, um, how he was able to put this together and what Roloff's role in all of this was and what I'm asserting, which I'm sure a lot of you now, if you're smart, if you're awake, you, are, you should easily be able to put together what I'm explaining to you about the three-letter organizations, the alphabet soup, the clowns in America, you know, starting off and running these different organizations. That's what they did. That's how they made money, whether it was drug trafficking or sex trafficking or other things that are pretty much even, um, you can research them through FOIA acts, Freedom of Information Acts, um, and see what they were doing as far as, uh, drug and money laundering. It's right there. It, this is it's not conspiracy. You can uh, look it up. And it's uh, there's plenty of documentation about that. And that's what black budget uh, funds, a lot of it comes from. Not just from our taxes, but also from the sex trafficking and drug running and everything else that was going on. And they were the ones that were in charge of putting this together. So that's who I believe for sure Roloff was. And when he was no longer needed, he had a plane. He was flying. So I keep coming back to these kids being flown all around. So it makes me think there 
that Roloff, I'm sure, was using that plane to fly the children to the different governors uh, or the states that would go to the governor's mansions and whatever's happening there is what's going on there. Uh, now, as far as the White House, this probably was a different plane. Uh, I don't know, probably some one sent from the White House, possibly unmarked, though, and then flew the, uh, the children or boys, the teenagers in in that manner um, for these, quote, parties of what was going on. So I think I'm going to stop there today. Um, again, just because there's so much more information here and I know that it can get confusing. Um, I hope I didn't confuse you guys too much and that you're able to put together some more of the pieces here. We're going to get into how it applies to today, how it applies to Epstein, how it applies to Weinstein, what's going on in Hollywood, um, that these places are all still connected through, quote, these WASP programs, not just in the United States, which there are thousands of them, literally, where they're also overseas, literally. These these uh, facilities are in Costa Rica and... Uh, um, Romania, even over in uh, in Europe, some of these kids are drugged and they wake up and they're literally there. They're outside the country. The parents had signed the you know whatever it is that he needed to sign, and they took them out under the guise of they were going to help them because they were troubled teens. The parents uh, again not knowing what was really going to go on, what was happening. But we're going to teach you what to look for, the exact things. We'll give you an order like ten things to look for. Um, because there's lots of places if you're having trouble, and I mean real trouble, most things you, you need to be able to handle as a family. You shouldn't push your problems off with your kids onto groups like this because 95% of them are illegitimate. There's only a very small amount that are legitimate that could actually do some help for your child. It would only be in the worst case scenario. And I put that challenge on to you if there's parents listening to not just jump to pushing them off onto somebody else because believe me, something bad is going to happen to them, statistically speaking, because there's so many of them. And I'm telling you, they know how to work you. They know what to tell you. They know how to make these places look like gardens of Eden, that it's literally the greatest place that your child is ever going to go to. And then you find out months later after they take off that they have been locked into cells and waterboarded and on and on. It really, that's that bad um, and worse. And again, more children passing away, um, dying, um, suits being placed in the courts uh, with a lot of what's going on. There's a gentleman um, that's suing and telling his story on a few different um news sites that goes all the way back to 1968 when he was in one of Roloff's facilities going back that far and they were sending him into what was called quote the White House but what wasn't that White House but it was called the White House because it was white but when you got inside the walls were covered in blood from the beatings the beatings that they would take were so bad that blood would literally fly and was stuck on the walls all over so I don't want you guys to get a picture in your head of just like 
a switch, you know, where you go out and just get a little stick and, you know, some parents used to do that when you're a kid and, and you got a little spanking, you know, whatever, big deal. This is serious stuff. This is like caning, like what would happen to you in Singapore if you break the law. And trust me, when you get caned, uh, you're, you're hurt so badly you cannot walk. So they break bones. Uh, that's the type of thing that when we talk about getting beaten um, is occurring to you or worse um, with some of the techniques that they use. And then, of course, you've got the psychological abuse um, of, of the programming and the brainwashing with the being strapped down um, and having the tapes played, which started with Lester Roloff. And how would Lester Roloff learn this and how to do it? He would learn it through those organizations because they're the ones that perfected it in that time. We're, we're not talking about recently. We're, the roll-off goes all the way back to the 1940s starting this stuff and into the 50s, okay? So he would have known nothing about this. This isn't, quote, hypnotism, which which was around back then, but those were just acts that, you know, people would put on. We're, we're talking about actual real mind manipulation here. And again, like MK Ultra like what they put the Unabomber through, which if you've ever seen the documentaries or movies, you would know MKUltra is real. What you see happened to him, happened to him. So no wonder that man fell into the, God, the, the mental black hole that he did. And I'm not justifying him sending out those bombs. I'm just saying, I, I get it. I, I, can, I can see how he could fall into that mental black hole because of what happened to him during those studies. I mean, I could have been a lot worse than what happened. I'm surprised that only a couple of people were killed by these bombs. And I, it really, it could have been much, much worse, folks, much worse when you take that into consideration. And that's just what was done there at Harvard and some of the other Ivy League schools. This was being done at, again, facilities and organizations all across the United States. It's still being done today. It was very, very big in the 80s. Then you can get into remote viewing, which is a whole other thing. Uh, there was PSYOP wars going on between the United States and Russia, where it was kind of like the space race, but they were um, rushing back and forth to see who could develop telekinesis first or mind reading first, and they really believed in this. This is the real deal. Again, Look it up. Spend all day. You can find as much information as you ever want on uh, on all of that. So, okay, I'm going to let you guys go. I hope that helped a little bit to put some of the information together. I really do need help from, again, the girl's position now that I don't have Jessica in order to help me because I know there was quite a bit going on on that side, but I can't speak to it only from some of the stories that I will get into on the next show. There's plenty of it, but I, I'd rather get it right from the person's mouth for you, not just an article. So you can literally hear it and you can feel it and you can know what's going on. And again, to realize that it's still occurring today in a different form, but it's still occurring. And then again, teach the parents and teach people what to look for and what not to fall for because we are so easily, so easily programmed like sheep you know um unfortunately i'm i'm sorry to tell you all that but we are 
we're as humans, you know, basically as animals, the way that our minds work and brains work and just think about buying things. You don't even know when you walk into a grocery store, why you buy half the things you buy. Well, I'm here to tell you that you're buying half of those things or all of those things because you have been programmed to do so by the commercials that run and they're running a certain way. It's called the Bernays method. Bernays like the sauce. You can look it up um, in his methods, which he took from uh, the Nazis in Germany and the propaganda and how incredibly good they were at doing that, um, which if anybody understands any history at all, I'm not going to get into all that right now. I mean, <laughs> but if you do look that up, look up uh, what they did. They put a free radio in every single citizen's pocket in that time. Think how smart that was so that they could hear and be entertained by whatever Hitler wanted them to be entertained by. And then when he did his speeches, you would be able to hear his speeches. And every single citizen had this radio, pocket radio too. Think about that technology at that time. Um, but so that's part of that method. And then they, you know, took that to a whole different level uh, after that to where they could literally get their neighbors to out their other neighbors and kill them in the streets. And I mean, you got to pr- be pretty brainwashed and programmed to get to that point where even fear alone is going to cause you to do something like that, um, especially to do it on your do it yourself, whether it's you or your neighbor. And I know a lot of people that just wouldn't do it and would allow themselves to be shot because they would stand up and know that it's wrong. They would not allow the neighbor who might be Jewish or you know the uh, gypsies that were more or less outside of the towns, but maybe a gypsy or or maybe was uh, closeted uh, homosexual. Uh, again, you know, these were all the people that were put into the camps. It's not just the Jews. That was the majority, but it was everybody. And so that uh, aura of telling on your neighbors was uh, pretty much invented, or I should say perfected by the Third Reich. Horrible, horrible stuff. And then we brought it here, just like we brought in with uh, Project Paperclip. We brought all of the German scientists here and Werner von Braun for the space race and getting to the moon. He was one of them. Um, We gave them all a free pass. And so there was a lot of other scientists that came here, but also in the marketing and propaganda was brought over here and used against us as a society that came directly from Hitler's Nazi Germany. Okay, that's enough, folks. Look for another episode probably next week. Should be no problem with that. We're going to start doing quite a bit more. Please, please go and give us a five-star review. As I've explained a million times, that's how people find us, okay? If you've you've taken the time to listen, just click the five stars. You can find it right there. It's, It's right there on Apple iTunes, and it's pretty easy to find. I don't know exactly where they are, but you can also do it with Google Android. Just click the five stars for us so we can also be suggested um, and we'll grow much, much faster because we're also dealing with, you guys should know, the OWL, Once Was Lost podcast. So OWL, O-W-L, Once Was Lost 
podcast, which were a partner and uh, one half of a tool for missing persons uh, of the OWL once was lost phone application. So you can get that on iOS, Apple, or Android on the Play uh, Store. Uh, you need to get that. If you have kids, you have elderly parents um, with dementia, Alzheimer's, or you work in a facility that does, anybody that's vulnerable in any shape or form, go and get that application. There's only a couple of them, and the other ones are no good. This was the only, This one is phenomenal. That's why I partnered with them. So what he does is he runs the application. It's free. The guy pays for it out of his own pocket to help protect you and your children. You can do it in real time. Your child goes missing in a store. You could literally upload them within a minute or two and be on the phone with me interviewing in real time, giving out specific information that's even more detailed than what you can put into the app. And we can have people that have joined looking for your child and be bringing back your child and putting them into your arms literally before the podcast is even over. Think about that. That's the truth. So this is the game changer. So if, please do that. I, look, we don't make anything from this, guys. Nothing. Um, I do, though, want to bring up, we do have a Patreon for that because we do have to obviously keep the application. And it's a, it's a very sophisticated app, you know? This guy, you know, we're blue-collar people here. All right, you know, we do all of this out of our own pocket, and look, this is this is fun for me to do. But the owl is different. That that's a literal life saving tool, and we've got to keep it going properly. So you just go to www.patreon. That's p a t r e o n dot com forward slash once was lost podcast. Um. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's podcast or pod. I apologize, but um, patreon.com forward slash once was lost podcast or once was lost pod. I'm pretty sure it's podcast, but look in the show notes. It's right there, okay? And please help us with anything, even if it's just a dollar a month. It's going to help to keep that going. In fact, we've got a huge ad, a three-minute ad um, that's going to be out on the Minds of Madness if a lot of you are fans of that show, it's a phenomenal, really well done true crime podcast. They were nice enough. They reached out to us. We didn't even ask. They reached out knowing what we were doing, knowing that this is a game changer for everybody, for the criminology, for law enforcement, for families, that not just for missing people, but we're also going to work on cold cases and we're working with some organizations that do that on ones that have the best chance at being solved because we're going to have such a large group of people because it just, you got to understand, it just makes sense. It's its a need. If you don't download this and you have kids, I don't know what to tell you, okay? It's, it's not child abuse. I'm not going to say that, okay, because that's not true. But it's just not fair to the kids. Again, makes no difference to us. I don't know who you are. I don't know who I'm speaking to right now, but whoever is listening, again, if you have kids, if you've got parents that are elderly, again, with Alzheimer's or dementia, you work in a hospital um, for the elderly, you um, and you have somebody that is mental uh, uh, challenged, uh, you know, maybe with uh, they're autistic or anything, you know, there's a million different things here of people that can go missing. 
Amber alerts are great. Silver alerts are great, but they don't come out immediately. There's precious time there that's lost. And then you only get the name, maybe what they're wearing if you're lucky, and a license plate. Now, how is that going to help you? Unless you're driving behind them, literally, right, on the interstate. And then, look, but I'm not laughing at them. They're a great tool. They're better than nothing. But now, because parents complained of the missing and abducted children and law enforcement, they are backing us, the ones that know we exist, but they're all going to start to know that we exist now. And we're going to start to spread and grow very, very quickly, almost exponentially uh, because of word of mouth. And that's what we need you guys for. So please go there, download the application first, then download the podcast. It's not like other podcasts. We're, we're going to be doing live interviews. And as we get moving, this is even going to be a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week deal. So even in the middle of the night, if your child goes missing, we're here for you. You will literally be able to upload your child and get in touch with us. One of our hosts will be on duty and will go live with your information. Okay? Um also, I don't want you to think like, you know, the entire, everybody in the United States is all alerted at the same time. You know, you'll get alerted if it's within a specific area um, of the child going missing or the, your parent going missing or whatever. Um, you know, because again, it, but if it's over a specific amount of time, because everything is within that first hour, guys, right? If, if you do not find a child in the first hour, if they're abducted, there's only a 6% chance they will be found alive. That is unacceptable. And I would hope that every one of you would feel the same way. That is unacceptable. And the way that we fix that is by downloading this app so that if your child does get abducted, you can upload them within minutes and you could have literally hundreds of people just in your area within, let's say, 20 miles all searching, maybe even into the thousands if you're in a city area, tens of thousands, okay? All looking for your child. That makes that chance and stat go way up as far as us having the opportunity to find that person, to find that culprit. Rest them, put them in jail. Put them in jail for the rest of their life for kidnap or you know whatever, whatever it is that they did. So... That's what we're working on. That's the other thing. That's going to become the base core podcast for a Sonder Productions, S-O-N-D-E-R, a Sonder Productions. We have a audiobook podcast that's going to come out. We've got a live sports podcast that's going to come out with some Hall of Fame players. It's going to be pretty awesome through a director producer that we know. And then we've got, of course, the life-saving owl once was lost podcast, once was lost phone application. That's at the core because that's what we want everybody to have. We don't care about the rest, guys. We really don't. It's not about that. And all of the Patreon money, guys, it it goes to charity. It goes to the app to make sure that it works. And it's going to go to charity too, to like private investigators that people can't afford after the police are done. In big cities, sometimes they only have a week maybe less to search for your child or whoever it is that goes missing. And then they got to move on to another case and you're just left sitting there. What are you going to do? And you don't have the money to afford to pay a private investigator to go and search 24 hours a day. Well, 
I'm here to tell you there are organizations that will do this for you, okay, for free, pro bono. So we can hook you up with them. That's the kind of things that we're here to do, to be a shoulder, to lie on. You know, we say we like to get out and spread our wings and just wrap them around this nation. And that's what we've talked about. And just really just grab hold and just make sure. Because owls, if you know, you know, they're up all night and their vision is so good and they can see their prey. So nobody would be able to get away with what they, you know, had just done if there's an abduction. Uh, if somebody's just missing, obviously that's a whole other other story. But so please go and get that right now. Don't stop. Tell all of your friends. Everybody needs to get that application, even if you don't have kids, because I guarantee you, you got friends that do. Okay, so tell them to get it. But let's say they don't have it or they didn't get it in time. Then maybe you got it. You can upload the friend's child, and we could be looking for them right now as we speak. Again, it's real time. Okay. All right, guys, I'm just uh, obviously rambling now, but that was very, very important information. Please help us on on Patreon. Um, Look, we hear podcasts like I brought up before. They make millions of dollars. They have huge production companies. They still ask for Patreon funds. I'm not going to out them. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to say who it is. That's not right. It's not fair. And everybody deserves to make a living. They really do. Everybody deserves that. But when you're literally making hundreds of thousands of dollars per episode. And I'm telling you, a lot of these that act like they're small are not. And that's what they're making. And I can't fathom that, especially the ones that work in true crime, because they're they're working off of other people's pain. And I find that to be a little despicable. There's very good ones, though. I mean, I could... Tons of them. I've got 70 podcasts that I have downloaded, and I listen to pretty much every one of them. Half of them are true crime, but they're the ones that, that do a great job. They at least you know give out numbers at the end of who to call if you have information or tips, things like that. That's what you want to look for, those podcasts. So, All right, guys, I'm going to stop talking your ear off. We'll get back with you next week, and we'll continue this and uh, the saga and we'll even talk about the documentary that's going to be coming out, what those guys are doing and what they're up to. Over and out. I'm Drew.